You're listening to a podcast from City Tribe Media. We're an urban tribe that helps people who feel far from God to know God, find freedom, discover purpose, and make a difference. For more fresh content, check City Tribe on YouTube, Instagram, or Facebook. Enjoy the message, and welcome to the tribe. Now here's Doug Robbins. Hey, I'm Doug. We are so honored that you would welcome us into your home for this worship experience. And we welcome you, whether you're a Christ follower or you're someone that's what we call a spiritual investigator, just trying to figure out if God is for real and legit. So whether you would describe your spirituality like Mother Teresa's or Lady Gaga's, we are glad that you came to this worship experience today. And we hope that you connect with God through the service. Now, before MMA, there was a sport called boxing that people used to watch back in the day. And Joe Lewis was arguably the best boxer of all time. He had a spotless record of 27-0 going into his fight with the German Max Schmeling. Now, you got to remember, this was 1936 when Nazism was at its height. And Germany was the picture of evil. So the fight between the American and the German took place at a sold-out Yankee Stadium in the Bronx. Everybody expected Lewis to win, but he didn't. 12 rounds into a 15-round fight, Schmeling knocked Lewis to the mat, and Lewis remained there out cold. The hero had fallen down. The knockout was a significant blow to the plight of African-Americans at that time, and it was also a significant discouragement to our entire nation. This was not a fight just between two men. It had been a battle between democracy and fascism, right and wrong, good versus evil. And it appeared that evil had won on this day. It was reported that throughout the country, people cried when they heard the news of Joe Lewis's defeat. And it was a sad time in America when Joe Lewis was knocked out, knocked down. I'll give you more on this story later on, but perhaps you've been knocked out, laying on the mat of life. And throughout this series, we've said, get up again. We've tried to encourage you to get up again. And when we say get up again, what we're not saying is that you can go back in a time machine and change what happened because it's too late to go back and you know that. You know that your ex-spouse is gone. Your failed business is gone. Your relative that died is gone and you don't have the power to bring them back. You may not be able to go back, but you can get up again and move forward with your best life possible by the power of God. So whatever hand you've been dealt, God can work something that's good for you and bring glory to himself if you're willing to apply a proverb that we've looked at every week during this series. It's Proverbs chapter 24, verse 16. It says, the godly may trip seven times, but they will, what? Get up again, but one disaster is enough to overthrow the wicked. So in our Bible story today, we'll see two women who felt like they were knocked down for good. The story is in Mark chapter 5, verse 21 through 42. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. 
A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the, cr in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and, trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and he said to her, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. The story today is about two women, one with a bleeding problem, the other a girl on the verge of death. This is one of those stories where we see Jesus tuned in to the interruption as an invitation. Jesus is on his way to an emergency. Jairus' daughter was on her deathbed and Jesus was going to help. Yet Jesus is interrupted by the woman who had the bleeding problem. Jesus stops everything and gives his full attention to this woman. And can you imagine what Jairus was thinking? Jesus, we've got to go now. My little girl is going to die. Time is of the essence. Quit messing around, Jesus. We have got to go. We've got to do something. The woman with the bleeding problem had a chronic problem, but at least she's not on her deathbed like the little girl. And so it seemed urgent. But Jesus always understood that the interruption is an invitation to experience the power of God. One of the things that we've got to understand about this interruption is that Jesus favors those who've been knocked down. So if you've ever been knocked down in life, maybe you'd wanna post in the comments below, I'm favored. See, Jesus favors those who've been knocked down. And Jairus is a man which was an advantage in that day because of the chauvinism of the day being a man was an advantage. He was also a synagogue ruler, so he would have been considered in good religious standing with the community. He's probably well off financially. Jesus didn't care about all that, though. Jesus makes Jairus wait while he talks to a woman who interrupted him. And despite his high position, Jairus is still willing to fall to the ground at the feet of Jesus and ask for help. So I don't want to make Jairus sound like a bad guy. Jairus 
wisely humbles himself before Jesus, and Jesus still makes him wait. Let me ask you a question. Does God ever make you wait? God seems to never work in our time frame, does he? <laughs> it's kind of like when you get married and you have to get used to the family culture of the family you married into. So like my wife's family culture is an on-time culture, whereas my family culture is more of a manana culture, right? People tell us to be there an hour before the event starts, so we'll be on time. Well, most of us, no matter our background, want interruptions to be over, don't we? But while you're waiting, look around and learn what God wants you to learn. And in Jairus's case, maybe God wanted to show Jairus a miracle in the waiting to encourage him and build up his faith for the better miracle that would come later with his little daughter. The woman with the bleeding problem, she may have been of a lesser social standing. In that day, women didn't have the rights that they should have. She was considered ceremonially unclean because of the bleeding problem. And under the Jewish law, not only was the woman unclean, so was anything that she sat on or laid down on or touched. So if her uncleanness was known and enforced, she would have been avoided by the entire community. This woman was also probably poor, bankrupted from spending all her money to try and get a cure for her condition. Jesus turns to her gives, you know, gives this woman his full attention while Jairus waits. And perhaps the reason that Jairus is willing to humble himself was he had heard how Jesus interacts with people of, the, of a different social, racial, and economic class. Jesus is very quick to connect with the outsider or those who've been knocked down. Throughout the Gospels, you'll see these comparisons where Jesus favors the racial outsider, like the Samaritan woman at the well, or the moral outsider, like the woman who had been caught in adultery, and the religious outsider, like the tax collector, beating his chest, begging, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I like the way pastor and author Tim Keller says it. Jesus gravitates to people who are the most messed up and have messed up the most. And if that's you, you can know that Jesus favors you to help you get up. Now, the woman who's considered spiritually marginalized needed help, and she gets it immediately. Jairus, who was considered spiritually mature, needed help. He has to wait, and then his daughter died. Could it be that those who are spiritually mature are stretched more in their faith sometimes with more significant troubles to stretch that faith and help it grow even more. But what else was it about the woman with the bleeding problem that got Jesus's attention? Well, I believe it was her faith. She was a woman of great faith. And when this woman approached Jesus, the crowds were pressing in all around. And Jesus says something strange. He says, wait, someone touched me. The disciples are like, duh, of course someone touched you because the crowd was like being at Niosa on college night where people are stacking up those plastic beer cups, you know? And here's something it may represent is that people can be crowded around Jesus, but only those with faith touch him. She reached out and touched him because of her faith. A lot of people go to church, they get inspired, they crowd around Jesus. 
but not everyone has the faith and audacity to reach out to Jesus and touch Jesus. That's partly why some people attend church for years and years and then they end up falling away because they crowded around Jesus, but they never really had a faith encounter with Jesus. You know, some are inspired by the experience of other people's faith, but have never had a personal faith experience of Jesus themselves. They're crowding around him without touching him. Now, the Mishnah gives us historic background on some of the quacky medical procedures of that day. There were all kinds of concoctions mixed together that just didn't work to help people's medical problems. And the woman had been milked dry of her money by a healthcare system that did not have good answers for her problem. A lot of people today have the same problem. They have a spiritual heart problem hurting without a cure. And some spend up all their money on heart cures that just don't work to solve their problems. One of the reasons Jesus noticed her, her faith was that she had already given up faith on all her old doctors. She was desperate. And the reason that a lot of people don't find Jesus today is because they don't really believe they need him. When you come to Jesus, if you're seeking him, you have to understand that when you come to Jesus, you have to know that you need him. And another thing about her faith is that she believed a certain thing about Jesus. Now, according to Jewish tradition, the edge of Jesus' robe that the woman touched would have been called his wings. No doubt this woman knew the Old Testament prophecy about the Messiah. All the Jewish people understood that this verse I'm about to read to you was about Messiah. It's Malachi chapter four, verse two. It says, but for you who hear my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in his what? Wings. And you will go free, leaping with joy like calves let out to pasture. So this woman's faith was in Jesus as Messiah from God. Now, the thing about a lot of people today is a lot of people today believe that it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you believe something. They'll say something like, you do you, right? You do you, I'll do me. Well, what happens when you doing you hurts other people? Is it still right? Or what if you doing you is just wrong? Well, the woman was healed that day because her faith was in Jesus as Messiah. She had an informed kind of faith. And this informed kind of faith made Jesus say, I felt power go out. See, most miracles that, he, that Jesus did don't make him feel power go out. He calmed the storms. He cast out demons. No power goes out. It wasn't hard for him to do those miracles. But for the bleeding woman, she was unclean. And guess what happens to Jesus when she touches him? It would make him unclean. And I think this is a subtle illustration of the gospel. Whatever uncleanness that was on her was placed upon Jesus. And the same is true for you and I. Our uncleanness, our sin, our guilt, our shame is placed on Jesus when we put our faith in him and his death on the cross, something specific, when we believe a certain thing about Jesus, see? And the way Jesus interacts with the woman in this story shows us the gentleness of Jesus, the gentleness of Jesus. Jesus calls the bleeding woman daughter after feeling isolated and ostracized. Can you imagine 
how it made her feel when Jesus didn't call her unclean like everyone else. Jesus called her daughter and she's healed. But what about the little girl on her deathbed? I mean, did Jesus just totally forget about Jairus and his daughter? And I guess hope was all lost when the little girl died. The messenger comes and says, yeah, the little girl, she's dead. Professional mourners would have been there at the home and it would have been really loud and obnoxious. In fact, you're wondering what, what's a professional mourner? Well, professional mourners were people who would actually get paid to mourn and cry and wail and make a lot of noise. <laughs> kind of like, you know, LeBron James or Kawhi Leonard. And I'm an amateur mourner since I'm a Spurs fan. I cry and mourn for free, right? Well, Jesus gets rid of all the noise when he clears everyone out except for the parents, their daughter, and the disciples. Then Jesus said two things. Talitha just means little girl. It's a term of endearment like miha, like a mother would use with her little girl, like honey or sugar. And after he says Talitha, he says kum, which literally means get up. It's like wake up. It's like her parents... We're saying, honey, it's time to get up for school. And as he says this, Jesus gently takes her by the hand. What does it mean when someone takes you by the hand? It's a sign of gentleness and relational connection. Like when your abuela, your grandmother takes you by the hand, Jesus is so gentle with you when you're hurting. Jesus gently takes her by the hand and she comes back to life again. She got up again. An important detail of these two women in our story, the thing that brings them together, they were brought together by the number 12. Now you gotta understand that 12 in the Bible is the number of completeness. And you'll find the number 12 used 187 places in the Bible. Jacob had 12 sons. They were 12 tribes of Israel. And this symbolizes the completeness of the nation of Israel. The high priest's breastplate had 12 precious stones on the front of it. Jesus spoke for the first time in the temple at age 12, Jesus chose 12 disciples. There were 12 baskets of leftover after feeding the 5,000. The new Jerusalem or future heaven will have 12 gates made of pearl. The woman with the bleeding problem had the problem for how many years? 12 years. The little girl who was raised to life was 12 years old when she died and then was raised by Jesus. Jairus was responsible for his daughter in that culture for 12 years. And he was responsible for keeping the unclean bleeding woman from entering the synagogue for 12 years. The little girl reaches the age of accountability in her culture at 12 years old. The girl was dying at the very age she should have had her Jewish version of a quinceanera. It's called a bat mitzvah a special synagogue service on a Sabbath close to the child's birthday. Traditionally, the child would lead parts of the service. So the miracle Jesus did of healing the woman and the little girl would have brought all three of our characters in the story together. Jairus, the synagogue ruler, could now permit the woman with the bleeding problem into the synagogue. And as father of the little girl, he would be there for his daughter's bat mitzvah then both the woman and Jairus are led in a worship service by the girl who for this one ceremony gets up, she stands up and leads them. See, her comeback was better than her setback. 
Jesus did a work of 12, of completion. So Jesus spent most of his ministry on earth here, helping people get up again. That's what Jesus did. He helps people get up. So like when Peter's mother-in-law was sick and Peter could have said, let the old battle axe suffer, right? It's his mother-in-law. But instead he calls Jesus in and look what Jesus does in Matthew chapter eight, verse 15. When Jesus touched her hand, the fever left her. Then she got up and prepared a meal for him. She got up again, see. When there was a disabled guy who was sitting hopelessly at the pool of Bethesda, look what happened in John chapter five, verse eight and nine. Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. And at once the man was cured and he picked up his mat and he walked. Then one day there was an extortionist outcast tax cheat was sitting in his guilt and shame and Jesus called him to get up and follow. And look at what happened in Matthew 9, 9. So Matthew got up and followed him. And we have a gospel written in Matthew's name to this day because Jesus helped him get up again. So why did so many people end up getting up and following this Jesus? Well, here's why. Because after his death on the cross, Jesus got up from the grave. So many people follow Jesus because he literally bodily rose from the grave. And the early church was a group of mostly Jewish people who had stubbornly believed in God and worshiped on Saturday or the Sabbath day for many, many years. Anyone who studies the Bible and Jewish culture knows how adamant Jews are about Saturday as the Sabbath. In a matter of weeks, these same Jewish people, thousands of them, started worshiping Jesus on Sunday. What caused these conservative Jews to change their long-held worship day to Sunday? I'll tell you what, a resurrection because Jesus got up again. Then many of them became so convinced that Jesus really rose again, they were willing to suffer for him. One example of this is the Apostle Paul, who was the equivalent of an ISIS terrorist known for killing Christians, actually became a Christ follower. He changed and he became one of the most powerful voices in the early church. He wasn't killing Christians anymore, but he was following the Jesus that he had persecuted. And in addition, he was willing to suffer significant beatings, which you can learn about if you go back and listen to Pastor Lee's recent talk on Paul. We'll link to it below. Most historians believe Paul was ultimately beheaded in Rome for his faith in Jesus. He was willingly knocked out, knocked down. Now, Speaking of knockouts, whatever happened with Joe Lewis, the fighter? Well, two years later, a second fight was scheduled between Lewis and the German Schmeling. The location was the same, a sold out Yankee Stadium in the Bronx. But this time, the fight didn't even make it out of the first round because Lewis came out swinging. And just under a minute, Schmeling went down for the third and final time. Lewis won the match with a technical knockout. Lewis had thrown 41 punches to Schmeling's two. Schmeling later wrote, the whole area was filled with a celebration, noise and saxophones continually punctuated by the calling of Joe Lewis's name. And here's the deal. One day, 
there will be another parade filled with celebration, noise, and trumpets. But we will be calling another name. It's the name of Jesus at which every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. On the Sunday after his crucifixion and death, Jesus did what no other human has ever done. He got up again from the grave. And I really love how pastor and author Tony Evans says it. He says, Jesus Christ delivered death its deciding blow. Buddha did not. Mohammed did not. Confucius did not. People like to call Jesus a good teacher and a great prophet but his resurrection places him in a class all by himself. He is the risen Lord. And because of that, he is the only one through whom salvation can be granted. After all, you cannot place a living faith in a dead savior. So the movement of helping people get up again didn't die with the early martyrs or the early church. Jesus' life was so powerful that his influence is still helping people today get up again. There's this book called Jesus Skeptic. It was written by John Dickerson, an award-winning journalist and member of the millennial generation, which by far makes up the majority of our church. And if you didn't, uh, if you'd like to have this book and you'll actually read it, we'll buy it for you and send it to you. Just message us in the comments. But John Dickerson writes about the scientific revolution in this book that has vastly improved our world today. The movement was led by followers of Jesus. Now, we know that some people falsely perpetuate the narrative that Christianity and science are incompatible. Nothing can be further from the truth. The role of Jesus followers in the scientific revolution is not a matter of opinion, but of primary evidence. Now, by primary evidence, Dickerson means not what some expert wrote about the founders of the science movement, but the writings of the actual scientists themselves. So for example, Blaise Pascal was a mathematician, physicist, and inventor. Pascal's mechanical calculator is considered to be the first computer in history. He built it by hand, remember, at a time when people still chopped firewood and burned coal for heat before electricity was even invented or discovered. He was also a devout follower of Jesus Christ. He kept a poem about Jesus in his coat pocket. And here's an excerpt from that poem. He says, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of the philosophers and of the learned. God of Jesus Christ, make God and your God. He's my God and your God. Forgetfulness of the world and everything except God. He is only found by the ways bought in the gospel. Grandeur of the human soul. Righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you. Joy, 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 tears of joy. This is eternal life that they know you, the one true God and the one that you sent, Jesus Christ. We could also talk about Isaac Newton, who was a physicist, mathematician, astronomer, and inventor. As you can see in the picture, he may have also been in an 80s metal band, but he created calculus. He didn't get assigned calculus homework. He invented it. So Newton wrote over 4 million words about Christian theology, but look at one line from his personal journal. He says, Christ gave himself for me. And then there's also Johannes Kepler, who 
is the reason we know the laws of planetary motion. He invented eyeglasses, the pinhole camera, and more. He wrote in one of his uh, journals or writings, before the universe was created, there were no numbers except the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which is God himself. We could talk about Robert Boyle, the father of modern chemistry, or John Ray, the founder of our understanding of biology and zoology, of the founders of the scientific revolution, 98% were, according to the primary evidence, followers of Christ. And it's because of the influence of Jesus that we have today modern universities founded by Jesus followers. You can see on screen the top 10 universities in the world. Because of the influence of Jesus, today we have modern medicine and hospitals founded by Jesus followers, as you can see on the chart on screen. Because of the influence of Jesus, the end of open slavery came. Now, Dickerson is the first to admit that some religious people totally botched slavery. However, the overwhelming majority of people who led the way for the end of slavery were followers of Jesus Christ. People like Frederick Douglass, Harriet Tubman, Martin Luther King Jr., Thomas Clarkson, and William Wilberforce. Jesus' influence continues to help people get up even to this day. So we started this series of teachings with a proverb. Remember Proverbs 24, 16, the godly may trip seven times, but they will get up again. And years ago, I saw a follower of Jesus who inspired me to always want to get up. He's Nick Vujicic. Now imagine going through your busy day without hands or legs. Picture your life without the ability to walk, care for your basic needs, or even embrace those that you love. That's the everyday reality of Nick Vujicic. Nick was born in 1982 in Melbourne, Australia without arms and legs. Can you imagine going through your teenage years with no arms and legs? Can you imagine the loneliness and feelings of isolation? Well, take a look at Nick describing his feelings in this video. You know the fear that you have as soon as you walk into the doors of your house? Maybe there's a broken home. Maybe you have doubt in your life. Maybe you don't know for sure what's going to be happening in the future and it scares you. Maybe you're, about, you, maybe you're worried about what people think of you, what people say about you. Just that fear paralyzes you. And I just want to ask you today, do you think you have hope? Because I tell you, I'm down here, face down, and I have no arms, no legs. It should be impossible for me to get back up. I mean, you go home and tie the legs and arms of your brothers and, and sisters and, and like push them down and see how long it's going to take them to get back up. You know what I mean? You know, you can tell them that you'll see them tomorrow. You know what I mean? But this is the thing. It should be impossible for me to get back up, but it's not. You see, I will try 100 times to get up and if I fail 100 times, if I fail and I give up, do you think that I'm ever going to get up? No. But if I fail, I try again and again and again. For as long as I try, there's always that chance of getting up. Does that make sense? And it's not the end 
until you've given up. And just the fact that you're here should persuade you that you have another chance to get back up. There's still hope. I'm not here today to tell you that I understand your pain. I don't know how it feels to be abused. I don't know how it feels to feel, quote, fat and you've got an eating disorder. I don't know how it feels to have a broken home. I don't know how it feels. But I know how it feels to have a broken heart. And I know how it feels to be alone. And I want you to know that I found my strength in Jesus Christ and you're going to find your strength in whatever you find it in. But I just want you to know that it's not the end. It matters how you're going to finish. Are you going to finish strong? And you will find that strength to get back up like this. Will the good news of Jesus Christ and his resurrection is that it gives us, you and I, the power to get up again. And if you would like to receive a love relationship with him, with Jesus, for the very first time, you can do it by applying the truth of the number 12. And that's in John 1.12. I'll read it to you. It says, yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And right now in these moments, if you've never believed in Jesus, you've never had love relationship with God and you would want one, he is by his grace reaching out his hand to you. Will you reach up by faith and touch him and receive him into your life and be called his daughter or be called his son? You can do that through a simple prayer. Now, the words that you say in this prayer are not as significant as the attitude of your heart. So let's bow for prayer right now. And this could be the most significant moment in your entire existence. As you talk to God, just in your own words, in your own heart and mind, say something like this. Look, God, I know I've sinned and screwed some stuff up. But right now, the best I know how I choose to believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay the penalty for my sin. He rose again to give me new life. So God, I welcome you through Jesus into my life. Thank you for coming in. As we continue in prayer, perhaps some of us who have known God, known Jesus for many years, have felt knocked down by the current crisis or the current circumstances of your life. And you're reaching up to God right now in prayer and saying, God, I'm reaching up to you to touch you. Will you reach down and grab me by the hand and lift me up so I can get up again? God, I need you. God, I'm crying out to you because I'm hurting because of these circumstances. Will you please lift me up again? Thank you for the truth that you've given me in your word to encourage my heart today that I can, no matter my circumstance, and with your help, God, I can get up again.
This is our prayer, God. And we pray it in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Everyone said, amen. We're glad you were part of the tribe today. To further connect with us, check citytribe.church.